Hello and welcome to Screen of Consciousness, a podversation about how film and television change and are changed by the world and why they mean so much to us. My name's Jonathan and I'm a writer and television producer from London. And my name is Dimitri and I'm a screenwriter, playwright and author coming to you from Russia with love. Before we start the episode, I'd just like to say a big thank you to Kamal Yusuf um, for our awesome theme tune. I mean, I really love it. I'm sure you do too, Dimitri. Indeed. And uh, he can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Kem Yusuf. We'd also like to thank my friend Briggy for our awesome logo. And my friend Marisha for the wonderful caricature of us floating through the skies. Now let's get right into it. So Dimitri, you were talking to me yesterday about how you have HBO. And I told you that we don't actually have HBO here in England. And you were really surprised by this. It it, it surprised me a a great deal. Yes, Dimitri coming to you from Russia originally, now from Denmark. Russia doesn't have any of this. Russians just download things legally. But Denmark has had HBO Nordic, it's called. I assume it's for all the Scandinavian countries for for a while. Uh, I was late in getting, getting it. I got it once the coronavirus quarantine set in and I realized I had to pass the time somehow. I started watching The Sopranos, a lovely, lovely uh, television series which I'm now halfway through. I watched... um and I watched the film that struck me. Well, the first thing that struck me was I had never heard of it. It's called Too Big to Fail, HBO's own made-for-TV production, especially back in the days where there was a bigger difference between made-for-TV and cinematic releases, mm-hmm. which are now being released on TV anyway. So, of course, that difference is gone. Yeah, um, like Netflix. Yeah. Uh, like Netflix. But I'm even thinking about like actual you know, uh, films that can't be released in the cinemas because all cinemas are closed in the world. At the moment, you know, yeah. that are oh, going yeah, straight to, like, true, yeah. Amazon Prime or something like that. Um, yes, yes. Or you can just buy, you know, yeah, you can stream. I think Trolls World Tour, uh, sadly, oh, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> will have to be streamed <laughs> from home. cinematic masterpiece that we're all missing out on. I mean, but, you know, we're not missing out because we can watch it on Amazon. Well, yeah, if you have 20 I pounds. Like I think it's something like 20 pounds. To, to, to stream it Seriously. for 24 hours. 20 pounds. You wouldn't even pay that to go to the cinema. Maybe it's twenty dollars, but okay. But that's <laughs> well. I guess because I was shocked by the number, but then it's because you know you can watch it a whole family. So if you went to the cinema, it would be more expensive. But yes, paying twenty dollars, even fifteen dollars for streaming Trolls World Tour is come on, come on, DreamWorks. I think it's DreamWorks. I mean, is that how desperate they are for money? <laughs> twenty dollars or twenty pounds? Who's going to pay? I just don't understand who's going to pay that money. Well, that's like it half is a year subscription. <laughs> it it has oh, a six it. out of ten rating on IMDb out of not even five thousand votes, <laughs> and you know the box office f- f- right now stands at one point nine million dollars. Oh dear! Oh dear! I can't believe anyone would pay to watch Trolls World Tour for twenty dollars. That sounds absolutely insane. But anyway, it's not going to be free on HBO Max, is it? Uh, no, and uh, uh, one thing that is on there film that's all nine years old called Too Big to Fail from 2011, uh, starring William Hurt, uh, Paul Giamatti, and James Woods, uh, that talks about the financial crisis and the response to it. And it, I thought it was a well-told uh, story, very well acted. And it struck me how prescient it was about the crisis in which we now find ourselves. The whole mm-hmm. idea that reluctantly the american government came around to was we cannot let these things collapse because you know then the whole 
world collapses, a financial world, and then the yeah. real world. Because as they say, yeah. when you can't get your money out of the bank, when your money disappears along with the bank, yeah. you know that's when you get revolutions. Yeah. Uh, and I fear yeah, that exactly. we might be headed there. Certainly some countries already uh, are beginning well, to show some signs. it's been a long signs. time coming. It has yeah. been a long time coming. I think co- this, is, this is, you know... The, pre- the tipping point, I think. We're on that tipping point right now. I mean, people have been saying for a long time that our society was kind of at the in the death throes. I feel like this could be the, the very thing that changes everything forever, to be honest with you. I agree, and I agree that we live in uh, groundbreaking times in the literal sense of the word. I feel the ground mm. is breaking beneath our feet. I think it's up to us to try to make the best of it, and this is why we have started this podcast to try <laughs> to add our voices to the discussion, but also to talk about something that we both love and that so many people love and which brings great joy to life, namely cinema. Yes. We'll talk about films we love and films mm. we don't love at all. Sometimes it's more fun to talk about the films that you don't like. Um, and not to be mean or to be horrible, because obviously, you know, you have to remember these people usually poured a lot of time and money into making the films. But I think it's it's just more fun to realize why you don't like it. And sometimes there's films that, you know, are quite bad, which you love anyway. Like, for example, you know, the reason why me and Dimitri became friends in the first place is because we both love white chicks. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Literally the first one of the first conversations I think I ever had with you was something like, what films do you love? And I was like, oh, I love white chicks or something like that. And you were like, oh, my gosh, no one else has ever said that before. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. And I was just like, but it's such a brilliant film. I agree. And I think it is a reminder to all of us that sometimes you can just enjoy things and you can have fun uh, and you can that's true. try to, that is true. to look at the positive. And I think laughter is a very positive thing without sort of forcing a very negative and reductive uh, view on everything, including, obviously, a silly comedy, which I thought was hilarious. And you're right, I had forgotten that was one of our first conversations. But anyway, going back to what you were talking about before, about the HBO film, it's interesting that you mentioned William Hurt, uh, Academy Award-winning William Hurt, um, because uh, he actually is in one of my favourite films of all time, which is, of course, Dark City. (laughs) I know that you're not the most you know, the biggest fan of that film. But it's, I think in that film, he actually plays a really interesting role because he's not really the main character, even though he's probably the most famous actor in it. Even though, you know, Kiefer Sutherland's in it, Jennifer Connelly is in it. Um, at the time, he must have been the most famous actor, but he's not the main character, which I quite like because it's that whole film is very unusual in its style, its structure, directing. Um, and what's even more unusual about it is that... Um, it came out the year before The Matrix. It's also about existentialism. It's you know, the late 90s. And some of the sets in Dark City were actually reused in The Matrix, which is really interesting. Because I actually, oh my gosh, speaking about rewatching films that we loved before, I actually rewatched The Matrix trilogy. Um, How was it? About three weeks ago, I think, when, when lockdown started. It's not good. <laughs> Really? Even the first Matrix doesn't hold up, unfortunately. No, it doesn't. It's it's actually quite sad. I think it shows you what happens when people go completely mad with power. And they kind of... I think what happens is they overcomplicate... Like, the, the thing at the Matrix, the first one is, it's, you know, it's quite a big concept, but it's very simplistic, as in it's... The whole world is fake, basically. And, you know, we wake up, we're living in a computer. We get it. We get that concept. What they did with the two sequels was they tried to make it really smart, really clever, or really intellectualized. And essentially, it's not actually that. It's not smart at all. The script is terrible. The dialogue is awful. And what's really funny is the bit that everyone hates about it, 
um, the second one um, when the, when Keanu Reeves or Neo goes into the computer room with all the TV screens and speaks to the man who created the Matrix or whatever. It's funny because that's that last that scene lasts for about 10, 15 minutes, and he basically just uses loads of really long words. And essentially, what he says can be simplified in one sentence, but it just shows you that they decided to be try to be really clever, really intellectual. For no reason, because the whole reason people liked the first Matrix film was because it looked good. It had cool action scenes. It was doing something that no one did before. It was an idea that was really interesting. And it was fairly simplistic in terms of the structure, you know, the characters. And that's not, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm actually saying that in a positive way. It wasn't really, you know, complicated. It was, it was easy to watch. And that's why people loved it. And so with the second ones, it was just, what the hell were they thinking? I mean, seriously, this is when people go crazy. No one tells them what they can do. It's at the point where all those directors and producers were like, oh, we've had a success, so you can do whatever the hell you want without anyone telling you, actually, maybe you should just change this. Because I do think that those two films could have been saved. I think they could have been saved. But, yeah, they were just, oh my gosh. And the ending of the third film, it's, it's hard to watch. It's actually hard to watch those two films now. It's really difficult to watch them because they're very, very long. They're overly long. They're at least both of them are almost three hours, I think, or at least two and a half hours plus. And they don't need to be. They're just really weighty. They're really bloated. Um, and I think that one of the things that we loved about the first film is is Neo and Trinity's relationship. And ironically, given the fact that they are both now trans women, Trinity's character is completely destroyed in the second two and well, in the second two films. She actually has a part in the first film. And then in the other two, she literally just gets completely written out of it. And the only reason she's in it is to be essentially a scapegoat in terms of she's going to get killed and Nero has to save her. She becomes a damsel in distress, even though in the first film, she's actually, you know, fairly good. She's a fairly good female character and that she doesn't need to be rescued all the time. And then that's exactly what happens in the second and third film. And then they bring her back to life to just kill her off again, which makes even less logical sense. <laughs> so yeah, it has a lot of problems. I, I would just jump in and say that yeah. they you're referring to being trans women. I believe you mean the Wachowskis, not Neo and Trinity. Um, unless yes, there's a fourth sorry, Matrix film about, I haven't yes. seen. <laughs> yes, I'm talking about the Wachowskis. Yes, so well, there will be a fourth Matrix film. It's meant to come out this year, actually. Oh, I'm not even joking. And it's, they're bringing Trinity back, even though she's dead. So it it's make so sense. interesting like, what you say. First of all, I'm looking up at my film shelf and I see Dark City. I, I need to rewatch that film. I've only seen it once and I, I didn't quite understand it. Uh, I think I, uh, I'll make an effort. Oh, I With The it. Matrix, I, I, you got me thinking about something. I, I want to in, introduce this idea and I think we could return back to it uh, in, in later episodes. Uh, that... Perhaps this is being reductive, but bear with me. Maybe films could be roughly split into categories of uh, children's films, adolescent films, mm -hmm. and adult films. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I would mm -hmm. say that Matrix, as I remember it, and I have seen it a number of times, uh, I think it is such a classical adolescent film. Because it's... The, I'm, I'm talking about the first Matrix. I really, really did not care for the sequels, and I just... Uh, yes, they're just... I don't regard them at all. But the first Matrix, I think, is this adolescent film because it's it's deep, but it tries to be deep, but in a very, very 
superficial way. And I think when you see it as mm -hmm. an adolescent, and we see that yeah. you know the the red pill, blue pill, it's such a big thing on the internet now, twenty years yes. later. You yes. have this feeling that yeah. the whole world is against you. And I think if you were, watch it as a child, I was I watched it quick soon after it came out. I was maybe like eleven or something, quite young. To me, it was like wow, this big adult, you know, important. Um, uh, cinema, of, which of course it isn't, I see now as an adult. I think that's an adolescent film, and I honestly have to say, I feel sometimes adolescent films are the ones that hold up the worst with time, because I think the child, childlike mm. wonder, the childlike fascination, is wonderful. I think often the best films are the children's films, and I don't mean that only as films for and about kids I would argue something like Indiana Jones mm. absolutely is in the children's films category because I think it spe speaks to the child in the adult um, yes. Star Wars yes. I, would I would say the that, same yeah. um, many many films, wonderful films I think adult films we will talk about some films we love which can be very serious can be you know beautiful transformative experiences to watch, I think the adolescent films well, they're the really is one difficult of them. <laughs> yes abs absolutely yes Dark City is not an adolescent film no way uh, No, it's, it's think, a serious film um, and I think Matrix yes. isn't but com I think comparing from what you're saying comparing the Matrix with Dark City the Matrix is of its time and in terms of yes adolescence at that time it was the dawn of the millennium you know the new millennium the 21st century computers technology was just taking off you know most people still wouldn't have had the internet at that time most people did not have mobile phones so when you rewatch it now and they're all using mobile phones of course now we like, yeah, of course they're going to use mobile phones um but we didn't then and they still use analog phones as well they still use you know they have to go to phone booths and stuff so it's kind of mixing it's on the edge it's on the edge of the technology thing so i think you're right in the in the 90s when you're a child um it was adolescent film it was as you said when you're a 13 year old and you're like oh uh, you know you're discovering the truth for yourself and you know you suddenly think you've realized things that no one else has that is basically what the matrix is all about i think you're right and then i think with dark city Dark City, like the Matrix is of its time, and I think Dark City is timeless. And I think the reason why Dark City is timeless is because it's not set in a specific time or place. Like, I know the Matrix isn't either because it's meant to be a computer program, but they do say the world that we're living in is 1999, even though the outside world that the humans who have left the Matrix are living in is like 30 years later or something like that. Um, so they do specifically set it in a time, whereas Dark City isn't. And I think that's why when you re when you rewatch these two films, and with any film when you rewatch it, I think ones that are set in specific time periods usually do date when they're very very of that. So I think you're right. I do agree with you. I think I think that's what it is. I think it's it's of its time, and that's why it's so adolescent because it speaks to a generation, but it might not speak to the next generation because they're going to watch it and be like, "Yep, we know what the internet is. We know what mobile phones are. We understand that you know the world could be a simulation. Who cares? They're happy. These young people now, you know, teenagers." They're putting their whole lives out on the internet. They are creating fake mm. lives in which we all live. And we're doing the same thing by putting our, you know, putting all our stuff onto Facebook and social media. We are creating our own matrix in which we wish we were living in. And I think... <laughs> so it's not really you know, impacting on people. I, I agree. And and I think this is where some, some of the matrix lovers would say, you know, see, they predicted it. Uh, but I would argue then... I would go to another adult film, which uh, also came out in the late 90s, which, by the way, I think was a wonderful time for filmmaking, uh, and which I think is much, one, less dated, and two, just so much deeper. That would be, for me, The Truman Show, which I really think is a fantastic film. Oh, my film gosh, I about love The Truman Show. You know, I love and, it. And, you know, that film about this entire 
fake reality. And I think even honestly, even as a, whether you take it as a science fiction or almost, I think, a horror in a way, it's also much scarier film than The Matrix. Because The Matrix really, again, it's adolescent. There's a lot of action scenes and slow motion effects. The Truman Show is terrifying. That is a, a film. I think a film that's actually scary, because this is both because it's, it's real, yeah. because it's more adult. I think, and uh, and because I guess this is you know you don't need these being plugged into a computer or again you know the evil Agent Smith these things. No, you don't need that. It's just some film, some people who no. enjoy a human being uh, existing. The the entire yes. existence of that human being is solely for the purpose of their entertainment. Yes. Well, I guess, I guess, I, yeah, exactly. I think you're, it's smart of you to say that because ultimately you're right. Because when you think about the Truman Show, the villains, like, you know, in the Matrix, it was very clear good and evil. There's very clear, you know, hero and the villain. Whereas in, in the Truman Show, everyone is a villain except for Truman. Every single person, including us, because we are watching it as well. Like the yes. audiences at home who are enjoying watching Truman also involves that everyone is aware of his life and the fact that he has been raised to be for the entertainment and yet every, and everyone's complicit in the action. So you're right. Every single person is, is okay with it. And I guess you're right because that does say a lot more now about social media and the way that we consume it now, because we are watching terrible things on the internet and sharing terrible things and we're all complicit. We're all involved. We're all allowing that to happen. So you're right. It is, it is way more scary in that way. It's, it's incredible, yes, and it deals with that, the theme of exhibitionism, which I think also, you know, f cinema is so fantastically well-suited to deal with, and so many classic films, uh, uh, you know, uh, well, one example would be Peeping Tom, you know, the, I believe, is it 1962? <laughs> uh, a very, very interesting film so. that, that was, you know, so, um, it was so really hated. transgressive. I, li I, I like that film. Yeah. For its film, it's, yes, it's in 1960. Think, yes, it's a Michael Powell film from 1960. It's really yes. uncomfortable viewing even now, 60 years later, because it mm. is kind of, I guess, it's somewhat of a snuff film, isn't it? What we would call now. It is. Or, it is. It is. But I think what's more uncomfortable about it actually is interesting is that you're on his side. You like him as a character. He's not such an evil villain. Like he's not, it's not black and white in that film. You actually feel sorry for him and you empathize with him. And that makes it more scary because then you think, oh, actually, do you really want him to get caught? Or, you know, you play that, that is that gray line, is that gray area, isn't it? So it's quite hard, I think, to watch in that way. And also you like the woman in it as well. So you, you do like the characters. And I think now they would never have that subtlety. They just have, there's a hero, here's a villain. And The Matrix definitely does that. I don't think Mr. Smith's ever really... They kind of try and do it in the second and third film. They're slightly trying to give him a personality and make you feel some kind of emotion for him, but it just doesn't really work. No. And I would say, yes, I think everyone go out and watch Peeping Tom. So it's just very, very briefly, it's about a serial killer who records the deaths of his victims. So it is in that voyeuristic uh, in that way. And and of course, it has that meta, uh, as Jonathan mentioned with the Truman Show, that's why I thought of it, because it has that meta perspective that he is enjoying the deaths mm. of his victims and we are enjoying watching him enjoying the deaths of his victims, right? As viewers. And yeah. I think yeah. even then, yeah. um, that would be, for instance, so different from uh, the 
uh, works of Alfred Hitchcock, who is, you know, undoubtedly a genius film director. I think we both adore Hitchcock. But uh, you can argue that I certainly think in, in many, most of his films, they're very moralistic. You definitely have the good guy and the bad guy, and you're on the good guy side. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, yeah. uh, Peeping well, Tom think... was much more morally ambiguous and, and challenging for the audience yes. in a way that I just don't think uh, Hitchcock ever challenges his audience that much, at least in most of his films. No. In most of his films. Well, I think this is the thing with Hitchcock. I think what's funny, I think when that when Peeping Tom came out, it I think that actually destroyed the director's career because it was such a negative backlash. And I think Psycho came out a year or two later. Same think, year, actually. If, if same I remember year. correctly. Oh there you go. Same year, there you go. So Psycho came out after, but everyone liked Psycho. As in Psycho was, you know, very critical of course now it's still critically, you know, revered. Um, whereas Peeping Tom destroyed his career, no one spoke about it. Only I think it only kind of came back again in the eighties, nineties, where people like found it again. Um, but yeah, Psycho, as you said, is a. It's I wouldn't say it's safer. I think it's still quite um, disturbing and un, unpleasant to watch. But I think it does. It doesn't really have as much of that like that grey area because you know Norman Bates. You don't know he's a villain, but you still kind of guess it and he's not really likable in any point i don't think i think he's meant to be a little bit likable but he's not really and as soon as it's revealed that he's the villain <laughs> there's no gray area about it he's completely crazy well he's completely psycho as the title is called whereas i think it's interesting that you mentioned hitchcock because i think when you watch frenzy because hitchcock was most of his career was very heavily censored by the censors because, you know, at that time they had a lot of strict rules on what we could show in film. What's really interesting is that I think the one film that really sums up Hitchcock as a person is Frenzy. I don't know if you've ever seen Frenzy. Oh, um, absolutely, and I love it. Have, have and I it? know where we're going with this. Frenzy. Go on. Exactly. And Frenzy, I think, is the film that Hitchcock always wanted to make all the time without being censored. It It shows his brutality towards women, I think. It shows his kind of unpleasantness towards humanity um and i think it's very mean and it, i'm not surprised i don't think i also seem to remember that frenzy was not well received because people thought it was too horrible um and i think it is a horrible film but i do think it's what it's what hitchcock always wanted to do he takes pleasure like uh, like quentin tarantino i think he takes pleasure in in destroying women and and you seeing it very viscerally viscerally and frenzy definitely does that i mean the first death in that film is probably the worst or one of the worst on-screen deaths in the entire history of cinema, even though you don't really see it in extreme detail. It's pretty horrible. And and the whole sequence, I think, which is one of the best sequences in film, which is really clever, is when there's the body on the back of a truck and you think he's going to get caught. I think it shows why Hitchcock is a genius and why he's a master of suspense. But when you really think about the reason for that scene, it's actually really horrible. It's a really, really nasty sequence. <laughs> Go and watch Frenzy. It's so interesting that, uh, well, Jonathan, you know, we complement each other well. When I was speaking about, you know, Hitchcock's moralism, these are the two films I thought of as exceptions. Yes, Psycho and Frenzy. I love Frenzy. Mm. I think it's. I think it's a very powerful film. I do think it's. It's cynical. It is 
quite hateful towards everyone and yes it's horrible towards women it is i think it's superbly made i honestly think it's incredibly funny at times in a very dark way but i genuinely think the humor works with as we know spielberg hitchcock has had his dark humor i seem to remember there's something about him getting a ring off a woman's a dead woman's finger that yes. uh, that made That's me laugh part of the same sequence um, that i'm talking about i think yes exactly yes. it's on the truck is right. or right after that um yes and yeah. uh, there is, of course, that fantastic scene. Is that the first murder where we go out into the street one long shot? And I think that's yes. Hitchcock making yes. this statement that your entire life, you people have watched my films about murder. And then you go out into the street and you like that. You like the mixture of the brutality and then the safety. Uh, I think that's that one yeah, shot. But... It's a wonderful shot. And it's a metaphor for Hitchcock's yes. entire career. Hitchcock was in his own way a moralist and it was especially turned against women and I think this is interesting because his films do have strong female characters uh, even compared to many modern films but then they're all destroyed. destroyed. They are, yeah, 100%. And I think that's The Birds. The Birds is a great, great example of that. I mean, it's funny because when we were, um, we met Laura Mulvey, if you remember, when we were at film school and uh, yes. she's a very famous feminist film critic and I and I said to her oh you know don't you think The Birds is an amazing example of Hitchcock destroying a woman because she starts off as this very confident independent woman by the end of the film she's completely absolutely well she's in she's become mute because she's so badly beaten by life and the birds and she was like oh maybe you're you know Laura Mulvey's like maybe you're over exaggerating and then she showed the clip at the end of the film where Tippi Hendren's character is completely covered in blood and she doesn't say anything and she's wrapped in a cloth and the man has to drag her out to a car and it's just like yeah this woman was completely broken and we know in real life she was also completely broken by Hitchcock on the set of that film <laughs> That's a very, very unpleasant story. Clearly unacceptable for a director to do. Uh, including, if I remember correctly, actually, like, throwing birds in her face yes, without he warning did. her. Yes, he did. Yeah, she almost lost her eye because he threw birds at her, yeah. So un- unbelievable. Quite, um, yeah. Uh, makes for a great film, though. <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, yeah, it's a good film. I think it's another film that's quite dated, to be honest with you. It's quite dated, um, mainly because of the effects. It just doesn't look yes. very good. I think he relied too much on the on the effects, and and I think that kind of ruins a lot of the tension in the film. That's true, and I would say, uh, so interesting how Psycho, which was made, I think, two or three years prior, isn't dated at all. Psycho is my favourite Hitchcock film, and it's a film he made on the cheap that's mm-hmm. also why you know he had much more creative freedom there because it was made very cheaply that's why it's shot in black and white shot really in just a couple of locations uh no special effects and uh, or maybe i forget but then minimum special effects uh if there are any and i think it's just a fantastic work creatively and i think it's really undated uh, and yes. i think the black and white looks beautiful better for me than the color in hitchcock's films mm-hmm. he actually filmed it on television cameras instead of film cameras <gasps> truly oh my yes. gosh yeah because he wanted it to look he wanted it to have a shorter depth of field to feel more real he mm-hmm. wanted it to feel more unreal uh, more believable so uh, you can see people closer which actually kind of goes back to the truman show because I, I watched that film in the cinema when i was a child but then obviously since you know ever since i watched it i watched it on dvd but just in sd then a few a few years ago i watched it in hd when it was on tv and and i couldn't believe how intelligently shot it is because all of the bits that take place in the truman's world are filmed with television cameras with a, well maybe not television cameras but they're filmed with a very short depth of field so when you watch it everything looks fake 
it looks like a set. Everything intentionally looks really unreal. And then when you cut out to the world in which, you know, the kind of a Christoph is living in and, you know, the real world, it's all with a very long depth of field. So it suddenly looks like a film would look. And it's actually very clever when you watch it because the lighting and everything inside Truman's world looks like a set. It doesn't look real. Um, but you can only kind of really see that in the HD version, I think, because I didn't really notice it in SD. So it's another another way that film is, is a genius film in the way it was made. That's fascinating. And it really makes me want to rewatch that. I think I will just as uh, I will rewatch Dark City. And I think it's probably time to wrap this up for oh, yes, our uh, current episode. I think yeah. we've been around some really interesting films. I mean, if some of you listening haven't seen some of those films or it's been a while since you've rewatched them, I would definitely urge you to do so. I guess uh, Dark City and Frenzy would be the least well-known of the films we mentioned Mm, today. Probably, yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think many people know about Dark City, but I'm always telling people to watch it. So I could could talk about it I think it's one of my favorite Hitchcock films, actually. And it's a 70s, it's 70s Hitchcock, of course. It's very unusual. Oh, and of course, yes, the least well-known film outside of film school circles we've mentioned is Peeping Tom. Definitely worth a watch. Definitely. Excellent. Okay, well, that's it then. But, uh, you know, tune in next time to hear what we're going to talk about then. I mean, who knows? It could be anything. So, uh, It can and will be anything. (laughs) I'm sure it will be. Yeah, exactly. Before we leave, I'd just like to say thank you once again to Kamal Yusuf for our amazing theme tune um, and to Briggy for our logo. And to Marisha for our caricatures. Thank you for listening.